This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about America's favorite tycoon, the sage of Omaha, Warren Buffett. He supported Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton for president. Even Bernie Sanders has praised his unselfishness. But our man David Dayan says Warren Buffett's wealth has actually been built on monopoly power. It's coming up later in the show. Also, working-class women who voted for Trump, are they stupid, ignorant, gullible, and turned on by Trump's bigotry? Katha Pollitt will comment on the case of Renee Elliott, the laid-off worker at that carrier plant in Indiana. Her recent speech at a labor group press conference made her the face of the white working-class former Trump voter. But first, Senator Elizabeth Warren is one of our heroes, and George Zornick just interviewed her for The Nation. He's the magazine's Washington editor. George, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. Monopoly power in America today. The facts are pretty stark. Remind us about that. Yeah, so what's happened at, at the very uh, top of many different um, sectors in the economy is that there's been this huge um, coagulation, I guess, where, where all the market power is accumulated by one or two players. So there's really only four airlines that, that control about 80% of the domestic airline seats. There's five health insurance companies that control 80% of that market. Same is true in things like beef or even uh, beer. There's really just two big beer giants that sell 70% of everything that we drink in this co- in the country. So, Two beer companies control all the beer in America? What about all those craft beers on the supermarket aisle? Yeah, that's been such a great case study in how monopoly power functions because you did actually have this this explosion of independent craft breweries for just a few years there. And people still think like when they go to the supermarket, oh, I'm I'm not drinking, you know, I'm not going to buy that case of Bud. I'm I've got this great craft beer that I really like. Uh, I would encourage people next time to look on the label because what you'll probably find is that InBev, which is um, what Anheuser-Busch became, this huge, huge beer conglomerate, has actually bought up a lot of these very small craft breweries. So if people want to track monopoly power in real time, just, just take a look at the label of the craft beer you may buy this weekend. And, and I think it's likely you'll find out that it's actually uh, now being uh, produced by a lar- very large corporation. Now, you asked Elizabeth Warren 
how she explains to the public why exactly why it's a bad thing that 80% of domestic airline seats are controlled by four airlines. What does she say about how to explain the problem? You know, it's funny because she kind of takes um, some of the rhetoric you often hear from conservatives about the free market and poses the question of how free is a market really if you have two or three companies that are controlling 80% of it. So when that's the case, these these companies are able to um, keep a lot of innovators and and small business uh, people in that sector out of the field. I mean, if you have that substantial of a share of of that market, you you also probably control a lot of the inputs and outputs, you know, the vendors and the and the supply chains that are needed for that. So you can you can really use that to suffocate and strangle anyone trying to enter that particular sector. So she kind of says, you know, oh I'm I'm in a sense a, a free market person. I think markets should be open and free and fair and you should have an opportunity to compete in a market where, you know, there's this one mega super giant that can't just, you know, run you off the reservation as, as, as soon as you try to launch your business. And how much of the problem of monopoly power in America today does she blame on Trump? You know, not much. I, I, in a sense, she surely has been helping lead the charge in the Senate against some of the nominees that Trump has been putting forward to the Federal Trade Commission and, and antitrust division at, at DOJ and things like that. But you know, she's made very clear that this is essentially a bipartisan problem. And in fact, she started talking about this back in uh, the summer of, of 2016. Um, you know, during the Obama era, um, you had mergers and acquisitions actually reached an all-time high. I believe it was $4.7 trillion in, in mergers and acquisitions in, in 2015. Um, you know, George W. Bush set a record for bringing the fewest um, antitrust cases to trial, his DOJ, and Obama only barely cleared um, that bar. I, I think Bush brought in the high 50s number of cases and Obama was in the high 60s. You know, even back to Bill Clinton, who was pretty business friendly, he, he brought uh, well into, the, well, I think, almost 200 antitrust cases to trial. So it's been sort of this bipartisan, soft bipartisan consensus that antitrust enforcement uh, doesn't really matter. And that's something that Warren is challenging now under Trump, surely, but but I have no doubt would be um, challenging the same under under President Hillary Clinton or, or anyone else uh, in office. And one of her big points in her conversation with you is that the problem is not just economic concentration and the absence of freedom to compete. There's also a political dimension of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it creates kind of a doom loop in the political system when you have a company that is just massive. And so it has a massive amount of economic power, which, of course, we know um, economic power translates pretty directly into political power uh, in the U.S. system these days. And so to protect its interests, to keep the federal government from forcibly making this this company smaller or reducing its market share, it can deploy that that political power that it has. It can use that political power in other ways to fight off regulations, um, to increase in, in a myriad of different ways its its share of the market. And then, of course, when that happens, the company gets even bigger, and then it has even more political power. And so, it, it like I say, it creates this doom loop where 
the companies keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and, and the political system is less and less able to address that problem. And the massive companies that dominate the landscape in America now are not just the airline companies, the drugstore chains, the health insurance giants. We also have Google. We have Facebook. They are, they are new kinds of companies. What does Elizabeth Warren say about the kind of problems that Google and Facebook pose? Yeah, you know, she had some really interesting things to say about that. Um, in, the, in the one sense, you know, very directly, she compared them to kind of the oil and sugar railroad trusts of the 19th century that we think of, of the Roosevelt coming in and busting up. But one way that uh, she noted tech companies are, are different than that, and in a way more powerful, just looking beyond the market share comparisons, is that those companies like Facebook um, and Google control data. And data is one of the most valuable commodities um, in the economy today. And so when you control that massive level of data, you can use it to influence how people um, shop, how they vote, um, and things like that. So if, if you believe that information is power, that, that underscores um, the case that we should really, really be looking at these just two or three companies that control absolutely mind-boggling amounts of data about just about every kind of behavior you can think of of, of the American public. You mentioned Teddy Roosevelt, the trust buster of the early 20th century. Does Elizabeth Warren think the government today has the power to fight monopolies? Yeah, and in fact, it's the case that a lot of those laws are still on the books. So antitrust regulators, it's not a situation where, oh, Congress needs to, you know, pass this law in many cases, and thus that will help um, the president break up big companies. A lot of these laws are, are there for antitrust regulators to use, but what Senator Warren said was that they just simply lack the will. So the government right now could actually go in and forcibly break up some of these big companies, and they just choose not to do it. And what's missing is kind of the political will, which I think is exactly what Senator Warren and a lot of the other kind of activists and writers who have been working on this issue are trying to build right now. Best case scenario this fall is that the Democrats gain control of both the House and the Senate. How much could a Democratic Congress actually accomplish in terms of antitrust enforcement? Isn't this basically an issue of executive power exercised by the president? Well, I think what would a Democratic Congress could help start expanding the case against this. And I think the name of the game now that a lot of activists and writers and I think advocates in Congress have embraced is start laying the groundwork. I mean, if you think about how one was even a few years ago, those of us who, who follow um, these issues pretty closely hadn't really been tracking or, or thinking about monopoly power. So I think that Democrats understand that it's kind of a long game. You, you start to build the mandate in the midterm elections. If you can win partially based on that, that's great. It doesn't mean that you show up to Congress in 2019 and can automatically change things necessarily. And that will be true on a whole variety of, of issues while Trump is still in the White House. But you start to build the argument as you get closer to 2020 and beyond. The 2018 midterms are coming up in just six months or so. How important does Elizabeth Warren think this issue of monopoly power 
can be or should be in 2018, given all of the defensive fights that have to be conducted against what Trump has done? Well, that's a really interesting debate that's playing out right now. There was um, a study that came out uh, this week based on a lot of polling that Priorities USA did. That, that's a, one of the main um, Democratic super PACs, very much in the middle of the Democratic establishment. And they said, quite frankly, that the Democrats had kind of taken their foot off the gas on the economic arguments they were making last year against Trump, particularly when the health care bill and the tax bill were being debated. And as the party has shifted to this kind of generalized anti-Trump message that he's unfit, that he's dangerous, that he may have colluded with Russia and may be trying to obstruct the investigations, that all those things I think are true, in my opinion. What was showing up in the polling was that voters were not really responding to that and that the party should really get back to kind of economic bread and butter arguments. And so I think what Warren believes and and what some other Democrats believe is that this can at least be a part of that. I mean, I'm not sure you're going to run a whole campaign on simply monopoly power, but I, I think it's a, it's a key part of the overall argument that Democrats are going to try to make or should try to make, which is basically there are these huge corporate titans that Trump has let run wild in the economy, and they need to be stopped and he needs to be stopped. Stop the huge corporate titans that have run wild in the economy. George Zornick interviewed Elizabeth Warren for The Nation's special issue on monopoly power in America. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, George. Thanks, John. America's favorite tycoon is Warren Buffett, the sage of Omaha. He supported Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton for president. He wants to tax the rich. He's giving away his billions. Even Bernie Sanders has praised his unselfishness. But where does his wealth come from? What's the secret behind his company, Berkshire Hathaway? Our David Dayan has been looking into that question. He's the author of the book, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. It's the winner of the Studs and Ida Turkle Prize. He contributes to The Intercept, The American Prospect, Vice, and The Nation. David Dayan, welcome back. Thank you very much. Well, I always heard that Warren Buffett was a value investor who bought good companies and held on to them despite market trends and turmoil. He likes drinking cherry Coke, so he invested in the company, and now he's got something like $17 billion of Coca-Cola stock, just under 10% of the company. He went to a C's candy shop here in L.A. He thought they made great candy, so he bought that company. He's not trendy. He's not a tech guy. Old-fashioned values made him one of the richest men in America. What's wrong with this picture? Well, that's certainly the conventional wisdom, and that's what's played out uh, in the business press for decades. But Warren Buffett isn't shy about telling you exactly why he makes the investment decisions that he makes. In fact, he often talks about this idea of finding businesses surrounded by a moat. And the idea is that the moat would keep all the competitors to the business away and uh, entrench that particular business uh, in, in a kind of quasi-monopoly 
power, the ability to have market power, the ability to increase prices on customers without you know, being afraid that they would go to a, an alternative competitor. Uh, he has talked about this for decades, and, and indeed his portfolio shows that his real appetite is not junk food, cherry Coke or whatever, it's monopoly. And because he's so powerful and influential, he has been a, a contributing factor to this increase in monopoly across all sectors of the economy, which has had really disastrous effects for the country at large. His company, Berkshire Hathaway, owns other companies, but where did the original money for Berkshire Hathaway come from? Warren Buffett didn't start out as a wealthy man. So Warren Buffett starts with Berkshire Hathaway in the 1960s. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway at the time was kind of a small uh, textile manufacturer. And uh, as Buffett rose through the ranks, he hit on this idea to convert, basically, uh, Berkshire Hathaway into an insurance company. And, and his, some of his largest portfolio companies, companies owned by Berkshire Hathaway, are insurance companies, 12 of them in all. And what this enables Buffett to do is to essentially use other people's money the uh, insurance premiums that come in before they are paid back out in claims. And uh, that money is called float. So in between that time where the, the insurance premiums come in and it has to be paid back out, he can use that money essentially for free to invest it in whatever he wants. And this float has grown from, I, I believe the number is $39 million of float in 1970 to today where he has over $100 billion in float. It's really this giant interest-free loan that enables Buffett to invest widely in whatever it is he wants. Uh, he, he's even talked about how he has more money than he knows what to do with now because there, there you know, is so much money coming in and being generated through the insurance business. Let's talk for a minute about the 2007 crash one of the key triggers of the 2007 crash was the bonds based on junk mortgages, which had been given right. a super safe triple A rating by these companies whose only reason to exist is to rate the bonds, the bond rating agencies. I was shocked to learn from your new article on The Nation that Warren Buffett owns one of the biggest of the bond rating agencies. That's right. He's uh, the largest investor in Moody's where he owns 24 million shares of that company. They're one of the three big credit rating agencies. And I actually opened the piece with this remarkable meeting between Buffett and these investigators with the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. This was the commission that was charged with figuring out the root causes of the financial crisis. And they go to Buffett because he owns so much of Moody's stock. And they asked him, well, what, what do you know about the management of Moody's? Were they uh, too lax in terms of their uh, particular way in which they, they rated these, these junk mortgage uh, bonds? And Buffett says, I didn't know anything about Moody's. I didn't know anything about the management. All I knew was that they had pricing power. And indeed, the three largest credit rating agencies control 95% of the business. There's nowhere else for you to go if you have a security and you want it rated. You have to go to Moody's or Standard & Poor's or Fitch. 
And Buffett knew that, and that's why he says, by his own admission, that's why he bought all this Moody's stock. He, he says, uh, and I'm quoting now, if you have a good enough business, if you have a monopoly newspaper or a network television station, your idiot nephew could run it. Your idiot so nephew. That's, that's really how he looks at this stuff. Everybody knows about Coca-Cola and sees candy and Geico insurance. There's another company Buffett owns that I had never heard of that you write about, VeriSign, V-E-R-I-S-I-G-N. I think I'm probably not the only person who doesn't know what VeriSign does. Buffett is the largest investor in VeriSign. They don't own it outright, but he owns about 13% of the, the shares. They are what they call a registry for the largest domain names on the internet, .com and .net. If you want to create a website and you want a .com extension on it, you know, johnweiner.com, you go to GoDaddy or you go to one of these companies that sells you that domain name. Behind the scenes is VeriSign, who operates the back-end architecture to make sure that when someone types in johnweiner.com, they get to your website. And they charge a very, you know, a modest amount for, for this service, but they charge it for millions and millions of people. Indeed, four out of every five websites that aren't tied to a country are either .com or .net. So VeriSign has this virtual monopoly over uh, the registry market for these domain names. And they have these government-granted contracts that in the case of .NET allows them to increase the price year after year, or in the case of .com, uh, operate it at a price that is extremely profitable and automatically renew that contract if they meet certain benchmarks. And what has resulted is that VeriSign has been able to enjoy an operating profit that is one of the highest in the world. They are making 60% wow. operating margins, wow. profit margins. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Now we know about VeriSign. We didn't know about them before. Everybody has heard about Wells Fargo, terrible bank, most hated bank in America today. Another one of Warren Buffett's holdings. Remind us why Wells Fargo is the most hated bank in America today. And tell us what Warren Buffett says about his bank, Wells Fargo. Yeah, how much time do you have? <laughs> Wells Fargo has been involved in just a series of unending scandals in virtually every kind of transaction that they make, whether you're talking about these fake accounts that tellers and, and, and line-level personnel created for customers without their knowledge, or the selling of uh, car insurance or home warranty products without the knowledge of customers, falsifying records uh, to increase fees on, on people who wanted mortgages with Wells Fargo, overcharging their clients in the foreign exchange market. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. This has really been just sort of a, a loop since the middle of 2016. And uh, Buffett has been asked about this on various occasions. He is the largest investor in Wells Fargo, has been for some time. At first, he called them a terrific bank, said you know that, that some things were, were, were done there wrong, but they're definitely being corrected. A few months later, when, it, when nothing was really changing, he said that the board of directors were culpable for not removing the stain 
on the business. What he didn't disclose at that time is that Warren Buffett voted to reelect all those members of the board of directors just a few months before he made that statement. This is another example of how Buffett is kind of an absentee owner. He, he has these investments and he, because of his stature, could really create change inside the executive suite, but he chooses to have a hands-off kind of attitude toward things, even when, in the case of Wells Fargo, a bank that has you know, these terrible risk management failures and, and, and loss of internal control, and uh, he'd, he'd prefer not to know anything about it. Let's talk about politics. Warren Buffett is famously a Democrat who wants to tax the rich. He says it's unfair that his secretary is taxed at a higher rate than he is. The Buffett rule is a part of the uh, Obama era. He wanted to tax people making more than a million dollars a year at a minimum rate of 30 percent. Would you agree that that's a good idea? Well, these are nice statements, certainly, and uh, worthwhile things to uh, pursue. But when it comes to Buffett and taxes, he he doesn't really walk the walk. Uh, His second most valuable stockholding besides Wells Fargo is Apple. And Apple has famously one of the most notorious corporate tax evaders in in the entire world. They, They stash profits in offshore tax agents to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. And Buffett himself is a very voracious user of tax loopholes. Just the fact that instead of investing personally, he does it through Berkshire Hathaway, that creates this huge tax shelter for all of the investments that he makes. It is assumed that the Republican tax bill will actually save Berkshire Hathaway $37 billion do you remember during the tax bill, there was a talk about the private jet tax break yeah. uh, in, in the legislation? That was actually about a dispute between the IRS and a company called NetJets, which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Oh, man. They were trying to get out of paying their taxes on these private jets. So, you know, it's nice for Warren Buffett to talk about how he should pay more in taxes, but this is a guy who has something on the order of 85 or $90 billion in wealth, and he pays about $1.8 million a year in taxes, this infinitesimal amount of his total wealth. So what would you do about Warren Buffett and his $85 billion? <laughs> well, I, I think there are a lot of things we can do. First of all, uh, you, you almost can't deny that that Buffett is more of an opportunist here. He's playing the system as it's as it's sitting there, right? It, it, the, the, the market concentration, we have laws to, to try to you know, forestall that through uh, the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act, the antitrust laws that served this country for over 100 years. We haven't really enforced them in a long time. And if we did, Buffett's strategy of finding moats would be less successful. The other thing that we can do is, and and I think the only way that we're going to really deal with income and wealth inequality in this country is to look at all of the money that goes towards capital ownership, the sort of Buffett-style passive control and passive investments that that earn him his fortune. We know that the top 1% of the country owns, uh, of the world, I should say, owns almost all wealth that holders of capital capture this increasing amount of national income. And if we're going to do anything 
about equalizing out- outcomes in any major way, we're going to have to look at capital income, which is the kinds of things that Buffett earns on a daily basis. If we were to divert some of that through a global wealth tax, we could uh, spread that, that those benefits out to the greater population at large rather than just a few fabulously rich, rich people like Warren Buffett. David Dayan, his investigation of Warren Buffett's wealth is featured in the new Monopoly Power issue of The Nation magazine. It's out this week. You can read it at thenation.com. David, thanks for this great piece, and thanks for talking with us today. Excellent. Thank you very much. Now we turn to Katha Pollitt. She's been following the case of a laid-off worker at that carrier plant in Indiana. Katha, of course, is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. We reached her today in New York City. Hi, Katha. Hi, Tom. Well, Trump made such a big deal about keeping that carrier air conditioner factory in Indiana from moving to Mexico. He, this was during the campaign. He said he saved the jobs of the people who worked there. What's the latest on that woman who worked there named Renee Elliott? Well, Renee Elliott uh, appeared at a press conference held by a union group. Um, and she said very eloquently how disappointed, angry, and forgotten she felt because she had gotten a pink slip, Uh, along with 215 other workers from that plant. So what's going to happen to her now that she's being laid off? A lot of people, especially on Twitter, which is such a fountain of meaningness, um, in, you know, took the occasion to call her words like stupid, ignorant, gullible, turned on by Trump's bigotry, selfish, and self-absorbed, because it was very clear from her, her uh, little speech that all she cared about was her own personal job. And she was perfectly willing to let, you know, whatever happened to, to women, to black people, to the country as a whole... Uh, she wasn't interested. She just cared about her job. But, um, but you know, people are kind of like that sometimes. They, when they're really scared, their vision contracts. And so I thought rather than, you know, join in throwing tomatoes at her, it would be interesting just to take a look at, okay, fine, we, we don't want you to make the same mistake again. So what is going to happen now, thanks to the man you voted for and his Republican Party? And it's a very sad story. But first of all, she is going to get some kind of severance pay, isn't she? Well, she will. She'll get a one-time payment. She'll get severance pay and six months of health insurance from Carrier. So, okay, so let's say that's all gone. That's all over. So let's say she goes on unemployment, and she's very proud that she's never done that. And I say, "Uh uh-oh, the Labor Department wants to give states greater leeway to drug tests unemployment recipients. And that's, you know, that's very humiliating. Why should this person who through no fault of her own was laid off have to, you know, pee in a cup? So then I say, okay, so after her carrier paid health insurance was out, she may find herself applying for Medicaid. Uh Oh, not good. Because Indiana, under new guideline issued by the Trump administration, Indiana has become the second state to implement a work requirement for Medicaid recipients. 
It's very degrading. I mean, Medicaid is something that says we here in America believe low-income people are entitled to at least some basic health care. And they shouldn't have to, you know, sweep the streets for it. But maybe she won't be unemployed for a long time. Maybe she'll be able to get another job. What kind of jobs could she get in Indianapolis? Well, I suggest that maybe she'll get a job waitressing, um, which is a very, uh, you know, one of the largest categories of work of, of work for working class women, and then I say, oh, uh oh, now this is really terrible. The administration has proposed allowing restaurant owners to take the workers' tips and pool them and then distribute redistribute them as they see fit, even to management and themselves, or they could just keep it as long as they pay those workers the minimum wage instead of the sub minimum wage that tip workers now get. Um, so in Indiana, that's $7.25 an hour. Mm. But maybe she could get a better job than a minimum wage job. There's a lot of uh, hospitals and health industry yeah. operations in Indianapolis. Maybe she could get some kind of white-collar job in one of the medical centers. That would really be great. Um, and I wish her all the best. But you know what? Then I say, well, what happens if she suspects she's being paid less than men in the same job? Yeah. She'll have, she, okay, well, she'll have a harder time proving that now because the Trump administration has stopped requiring the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to collect the relevant data on race and gender from employers. Um, and then, okay, so overtime pay, that could really help with the bills. And Obama who was the actual friend of the working class here, um, made millions of salaried employees eligible who were previously paid too much to qualify for overtime. But, uh, oh, a judge said ruled against that expansion, and the Trump administration isn't contesting that. Now, so let's say she were, ends up at a workplace. She, she loved being in the union, where the unions, employers are trying to unionize, and she'll find that Trump's NLRB has made that much harder. But let's assume she gets some kind of of job. She will benefit from Trump's tax cut, won't she? Well, uh, that's what people say. You know, people complain that the tax cut Koch brothers and the other one percenters are getting billions um, that will require massive cuts in social spending that will further. Uh, make Renee Elliott's life difficult, but the little people get something too. And I thought this was so funny. House Speaker Paul Ryan wrote in a tweet that he deleted almost immediately, quote, a secretary at a public high school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, said she was presently surprised her pay went up a dollar fifty a week. She said that will more than cover her Costco membership for the year. Uh. A dollar so fifty. Maybe, a, so maybe Renee too will get a dollar fifty a week. Well, uh, okay, that takes us up to the things that have already happened that will affect Renee Elliott. Trump this week released the details of his budget. That has some more potential bad news for Renee Elliott, I believe. Oh, it's really terrible. Um, so he wants to just slash billions of dollars from, for example, food stamps. Health ins- public health insurance, and federal housing vouchers. And the food stamp thing is the one people are focusing on because it really is incredible. He not only wants to cut benefits very greatly, he wants a lot of people, millions of people, to be put on this 
program that uh, the budget, White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney has compared to Blue Apron. Uh, so it'll be a box food delivery program, just like Blue Apron, you know, with salmon and <laughs> broccoli and all kinds of good things. No, it will, be, it will not have those delicious things uh, that people love Blue Apron for. It will be uh, a box, basically, of, of canned goods and shelf-stable milk that we all hate and peanut butter. I mean, it really is like going back to the 60s or, you know, I don't know, the 30s. And, you know, if you just think of the delivery problems of getting the millions of people that are, I mean, like 40 million people or something like that on food stamps, um, I mean, it's the one government program that still basically exists. Um, If you think of getting a box, a big box of food to all those people every month, that is not going to be inexpensive. And it's just like we don't want you to have any money to make your own decisions. Mm. Well, Why are they doing that? Well, eventually, Renee Elliott will get old and go on Medicare and earn Social Security. At least she can look forward to that. Well, they want to cut those things, too. They want to cut those things, too. And it's so funny because, because I mean, it isn't funny, it's tragic, but you'll remember that when Trump was campaigning as the big champion of the working class, we're never, you know, we're not going to touch Medicaid, we're not going to touch Medicare, we're not going to touch Social Security. These are all wonderful things for ordinary Americans. And he's going to cut them, all, cut them all. He wants to cut them all. Whether it will actually happen, I don't know. What do you think of Renee Elliott now? She voted for Trump. Would you call her selfish and self-absorbed uh, at this point? We're all selfish and self-absorbed. I would say we have to look forward. We have to look ahead. We have to stop attacking people for their uh, their electoral follies of 2016 because the only way that we can change things for the better is by moving forward. But I think the main thing is to motivate, motivate actually existing Democrats um, and get them to the polls and run candidates who are appealing and all that. But I, I feel sorry. I feel sorry for her. I feel people, I feel, you know, people don't pay attention to the news the way people in the media do. They don't, they don't spend all day figuring things out and balancing this against that. It's, Every, most people, they vote their fears, they vote their passions. And so uh, I feel sorry for Renee Elliott because her life is not going to be, not going to be pleasant. Katha Pollitt, she wrote about Renee Elliott for her new column at The Nation magazine. You can read it now at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, John. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the geopolitics surrounding the Winter Olympics, the destruction of sacred spaces in South Korea brought on by the Games, and whether we can expect protests from athletes this year. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, 
Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and now at Spotify Podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.